and you will need your Bibles. We are going to be in a lot of scriptures today, so if you don't have one, there's some free ones in the back, um, and we're going to be all over the place. Um, I wanted to take a second, good morning, Damascus Road, I want to take a second to um, go through this study guide and just kind of uh, inform you a little bit or educate a little bit on what is in it. I think it's important to have. Um, we don't give too many things away for free. Bibles and study guides about it, well, cookies, lots of cookies and bread. Um, but this is a, has a lot of information in it. Um, basically, where we're going, we believe in going verse by verse through books of the Bible. We have a few exceptions as we go through. We have a couple small topical series, family trait series, but most of the time we're going through books of the Bible verse by verse. And so Judges is where we're going this time. And it is divided into two parts. That's why it says part one. Uh, this will be about 15 weeks. We'll go through Judges 1 through 9, and then we'll uh, have a second part uh, later. After uh, we get to July, which will be Judges, and then um, there's Easter, obviously, but Judges will go till July. We'll do the book of Ruth in July, uh, which is pretty short, but it happens at the same time that Judges is happening. So we think they should be preached together. But to break it up a little bit, we'll do it in the middle of Judges, and then we'll do the second part. Um, in the beginning of this particular guide, there's about 20-ish pages of information of just stuff that I probably won't be able to cover. So I'm giving it to you, or giving it to you, so assuming you will read it. And if you do, it'll provide you some context on what is happening, why it's happening, who are the judges, who are the Canaanites, what is what we're supposed to learn about God from this really strange book, and it just kind of gives a, a guide through that. Then you have uh, 15 weeks of summary, uh, and then some questions that basically... Um, Jim Fickert helped to write some of this, and then we cannibalize all kinds of studies and make our own. Um, and then, in the very back, there are three appendixes. And it is one that's just a chart of all the judges to give you a quick reference of who they all are. Uh, one for each tribe of uh, Jerusalem. And then there's another one that's a map to show where they're all at, because they weren't all around Jerusalem. And then the last one for you parents is an uh, appendix that is called... Leading, or it's called family worship, but it's pastoring your family to remember God and His works. Because you'll see, starting next week, that the biggest issue in Judges is that the generation has forgotten God. And this is uh, a, basically an encouragement for you to take time out of your week, other than Sunday, to uh, dedicate to the Lord. Uh, the way we do it in my family looks different for other people. And how you do it isn't necessarily as important as that you do it. Because that you do it shows your kids in particular that this is important, that this is something you value. So the way it looks like for us, we take Wednesday evenings and we basically make sure we have a really fun treat, some kind of weird fun food, because we believe feasting with the Lord uh, is important to celebrate all the goodness that he's given us. And so we have some good fattening food. Um, and then we study the Bible. It could be something different uh, each week. We pray, we sing together, and half the time it's glorious and beautiful, and half the time I'm sending three kids to the rooms because it's totally disruptive. I mean, and Kayla and I look at each other and praise Jesus, we're together. So the reality is it's messy, but we do it, and the kids look forward to it, and they talk about it, even though some of the time they're being disciplined in the middle of it. So it's just, um, it's real, it's good, it's important, and I encourage you to do that uh, so that it becomes, um, the bottom line is, we are, at this church, 
uh, very much committed to equipping you to parent your children, but also to equipping the church um, to know God's Word in such a way beyond just listening to a sermon and moving on. So my hope is that you will engage with that booklet. We are in Judges. Um, I'm going to read one whole verse today, and then we'll be um, in a bunch of other verses, but we are actually uh, introducing Judges today. And then I'll pray after I read this verse um, from Judges chapter 1, verse 1, and see where God takes us. This is an intro uh, to the book, which means um, maybe a little different than some of the sermons you've heard before, but it'll be uh, God-glorifying nonetheless. Chapter 1, verse 1 says this, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And all God's people said, this is God's word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for pursuing us, for coming down to us, and then for communicating your will to us. And more than your will, Lord, you showed us who you are through your word. And I pray that you'll move me out of the way through this study. And Holy Spirit, you will speak. You will convict those who need conviction and comfort those who need comfort. And you will lead us to your cross where you proved your love and your faithfulness to yourself, your faithfulness to your justice, your faithfulness to your love for us there. Thank you for all that you've done to bring us into your presence. And it's in the blood of Jesus Christ that we live, breathe, and pray by your spirit. Amen. All right. Judges. Well, hold on to your hats. This is a crazy book. Um, The book of Judges is, if you aren't aware or familiar with it, one of the most disturbing narratives in Scripture, full of some of the most disturbing people doing some of the most disturbing things imaginable. And I'm talking about the Christians, okay? It is a a book that is going to challenge your faith and make you question a lot of things, I believe, in a very awesome way. It's so disturbing that most churches, quite frankly, don't preach it. I don't say that because like, hey, look, we're preaching judges. I say that because I looked. I was trying to find graphics and stuff for judges. I couldn't find anybody who preaches it. I'm like, I think I know why. Because um, you read it, a cursory, you know, stroll through judges is pretty shocking. Um, and the common theme, the repeated idea, and I put it on the back of the uh, study guide, is that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So just imagine a world like that, and then open your eyes up and look at our world, because it's pretty much the same, where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And this is not only true of the enemies or the big bad world out there, this is true of God's people, of the people that God raises up. They still do what they think is right in their own eyes, implying that it may not be right in God's eyes. But the thing that might disturb us most of all is God is pretty silent throughout the book. He raises up deliverers, but he doesn't say much about what they do. And the whole time we're sitting like, God, what do you think about this? Because I have thoughts about this, and they're disturbing. And so most of the book is PG-13. Some of it's rated R. And for those who have younger kids, there'll be some sermons where I'm like, all right, prepare yourself, you know, earmuffs, because at some points it is pretty raw and disturbing and perverted. And again, these are God's people I'm talking about. And when we go into the book of Judges, we have to uh, kind of be careful of two extremes where I see uh, churches and pastors and and teachers going with it. One is to avoid it, 
Like that's just, ooh, we can't talk about that kind of stuff. And the other is to sensationalize it. And you begin to talk about it in a way that's like, you know, you, you, it's like doing a, a sex series, if you will, and putting up big billboards of like, hey, sex, like Christians and sex. And you're like, well, are we missing the point here? And so we can do that with judges and be like, judges, look at the violence and the craziness, and then miss the point of the whole book and what is actually trying to be communicated here. Um, we don't have the right. God gave his word to us. It was entrusted to us. It was a gift to us. We don't have the right to take some of it and go, that's not usable. We also don't have the right to abuse it for our own entertainment. And so we have to avoid both of those extremes and just look at God's word and know that it has been given first and foremost for his glory, to declare his name, to make much of him. And it has been given for our edification. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15 that whatever, which in the Greek means whatever, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Even those like genealogies and maps and like weird, you know, architectural plans, yes. Whatever was written was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so the word of God's been given to increase our faith, to build our faith, and this is tested and really hard to believe with the book of Judges. You read the book of Judges and you see things like God's silence. You see things uh, like God's people doing incredibly disturbing, violent things. You see things like um, God uh, telling pretty humorous stories. You're like, really? Is that like okay to laugh at that? Can God like do satire and things? Um, so it's it's strange book. Um, but what is the story ultimately about? Well, it's about a few things. First and foremost, I think it's the story about a holy God who judges sin. A holy God who judges sin. Uh, it's the story of a faithful God, God's faithfulness, and man's unfaithfulness. And that's why we titled it Unfaithful. We're the un part. God's the faithful part. Okay? And it's a story about, really, God's devotion to himself. Now, you say that, you go, well, that sounds kind of arrogant. Not when you understand God is perfectly holy and the best of all things. You want him to be about himself. Because if he's about anything else, then it's less than what is perfect. Perfectly good, perfectly just. And we all want that, actually. So he is ultimately about himself, devoted to himself, devoted to his holiness. And we see that men are ultimately devoted to themselves and their sin. That's the contrast of the book of Judges that we see. Judges is, is bookended, like the book, is bookended by the conquering of the promised land under the first general, his name is Joshua, and then the first monarchy that comes up under Saul, King Saul, uh, and ultimately David would be considered the, the king, if you will, that you look to as um, the most important. But the book of Judges records what happens after Joshua and all of the leaders that he taught, all the elders and the, the guys of his generation, um, have died. And unlike when Moses died, because that's how the book of Joshua starts. Moses dies, and Joshua is the successor. He was identified before Moses died. Joshua, or Judges, starts differently. Joshua dies, and they're like, who's going to lead us now? There's no clear successor. And so what happens is God raises up different heroes to judge and notice I don't call them judges, and I'll, I'll explain that in a second. But he raises up these heroes, if you will, um, and 
they are to judge God's enemies. They punish the sin of God's enemies. And as a result, they deliver God's people from oppression from the Canaanites and the Philistines and the different enemies. The quirky, strange, disturbing thing, though, is that the very enemies that the judges have been raised up to destroy and to free Israel from oppression under, God raised up to punish the sins of his own people. So you go, how does that work? Because God's on his own team is how that works. And his team judges sin, whether it's in his own people or in the enemy. And so God is holy, and whether it's your sin, my sin, someone else's sin, he hates it. And he's going to judge it, and that's what we see in the book of Judges. And the crazy thing is not a single individual, though God says he raises up judges, not a single individual, not one of these deliverers is identified as a judge directly. But one, one time in the Bible is identified as the judge, and that is God. So God is the hero of the story. God is the judge of the story. And we must not forget that God is the center of all things, not man. It's his story, not ours. Secondly, we also see the story is not only just a holy God who judges sin. It's about a God who is incredibly loving and shows grace immeasurable. Um, The book of Judges is the story that began in the Garden of Eden. And it's the story of a God who is on mission, unrelenting in his pursuit and his mission to gather a group of worshipers for himself out of an evil and rebellious world that those same people created. That's his mission. And he does, although men basically, and and again, we speak about men, but I speak about all of us, mankind, Although men continue to be wayward, although they continue to fail, although they continue to go after false gods and saviors, although they are deserving justly of death, God accomplishes His mission and saves those same people. Now, the Canaanites are evil. And we have a tendency, and I want to protect us or or kind of push this away from us a little bit, to look at the Canaanites like, the bad guys, and the Israelites as the good guys. Well, let's be careful of that because God is good. All men are bad. Okay? And the Canaanites are evil people. The Canaanites, um, if you read in the introduction, you'll read, they're basically about two things. They're about money and sex. Sound familiar? Okay? And their culture has become completely perverted and broken to the extent where they do horrific things. They are bad people as we would just measure bad people like you're bad and you're worse and you're evil and you're Hitler and you're not so Hitler. I mean, like bad, right? They're bad people. But they're no worse than the Israelites. And we have to be careful believing that the Israelites are somehow a better people um, or that they were saved because they're special in, in themselves. And so that we wouldn't do that, God tells us, he tells the Israelites why he's saving them. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, here's what he says. The bottom line is, though we're unfaithful, God is faithful to himself. In Deuteronomy 7, he's speaking to Israel in telling them, you're going to go and wipe out all these evil people. And here's what he says. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
So you know, why did he pick the Israelites? Because he picked them. Why Abraham? Because he decided to. If it was not, verse 7, because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. So he's like, no, no, you actually, guys, you sucked pretty bad. That's what he tells him. I don't think you were special. Don't think you were great. Don't think you were big. But he says, but it is because, the reason I chose you, the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. He basically says, it's about my grace. It's about my decision to love you, an unfaithful people, but I am still faithful. That's the picture we see of God. He judges sin, but he is faithful to those same unfaithful people. The other thing that this leads us to, or maybe the greatest thing this leads us to, is that it's actually a story about Jesus. You see, we want a holy God. All of us want a holy and just God, just not when we're talking about judging our sin, right? The truth is, we want a judge, and I'll prove it to you. If you think about the person that you love most, the person that's most precious to you, and now imagine they're brutally murdered. Nice image. And you go before the judge, and you're watching that guy or person that that committed that crime, and you're sitting there waiting for the verdict, and the judge says, eh, we'll let you off. You would cry out, that is unjust. You would be angry. You would say, that's wrong. Someone needs to be punished. And you would be right. We all want a just God, just not when we're the person going before the judge. Right? And we also want a very loving God. We want a gracious God. We do want that forgiveness. We do want when it is to us. We do want to see God loving people as long as he's not loving really dirty people. As long as they're not too messed up, those are the ones that are kind of lovable. They're okay. But don't love this person. Don't love that person. So we want a God that judges sin, and we want a God that's gracious. And we're disturbed a little bit, like, what to do with that? Because how do you get both? Jesus. Right? It all leads to Christ, because you have to have both. See, we don't really, um, we're not really too upset about, I guess, the goals that God has to punish sin and to save people. We just don't like, quite frankly, how he does it. You're going to read Judges, and you're like, I don't know if I like how God works. How could he use that person? Not thinking, how could he use you? Right? That person. Once you say that person... You're in a bad place, okay? And I don't want us to distance ourselves from judges like that. Be like, well, those big bad judges, how about those big bad yous and me's and us? Judges shocks us, I think, more than anything because we see that God works not despite men's sin, but actually through men's sin. If you don't believe that, look at the cross, The sin of many men, the sin of the Jews, the sin of the Romans, the sin of one of Jesus' friends named Judas was how Christ got to the cross, the most glorious thing there is. That's a pretty big God. Is he causing sin? No, but he is sure bigger than it. And it doesn't prevent him from accomplishing his mission. That's what we see in Judges. And we see in all of God's heroes that he chooses, they're anything but heroic. 
They are sinful and imperfect and dark, and it doesn't stop us from being the delusional fools we are and sitting in judgment on them and being right in our own eyes going, well, I'm not as screwed up as that. You're going to be surprised by some of the stories of the judges, how actually familiar some of the things they do sound. Because when we read about this rebellious group of people, the Israelites, misguided leaders, the judges, what we actually see is just yesterday's older version of today's idolatry. It's no different. We are the same thing. And we are still being pursued by a faithful God, even though we're unfaithful. Now, my guess is not often that a lot of us read the Old Testament, number one, or that we actually think the Old Testament has something to do about Jesus. Um, when we read the Old Testament, I don't know, growing up, I didn't really read a ton of the Old Testament, except the stories like Judges, because they're really like fun to read. Um, we often make kind of three mistakes. One, we misunderstand the Old Testament as like a bunch of little, like, cute little stories to learn moral tales from, but they're not really connected. Or sometimes we dismiss the Old Testament because, uh, well, that just applied to Israel. It doesn't, make, doesn't apply to the church. Or sometimes we um, ignore the Old Testament altogether because it's just too difficult to understand. We get to like Genesis and we get to the begats part and we're like, what does that have to do with anything? Begat, begat, begat. I mean, come on, right? Or you watch, you read, like I remember in Joshua, we're going through Joshua and we got to dividing the land. There's like five chapters of it. And you're like, what are you going to do with that, Sam? How do you preach the boundaries? The boundary of this, the boundary of that. I'm like, yeah, listen to the sermon. It's pretty nice, huh? Right? Because God can speak through that. It actually has meaning. It has, God wrote it for a purpose. So we don't ignore it. But as difficult as it is to understand, um, I'm going to go ahead with what Jesus said. In Luke 24, the resurrected Jesus was walking with two of his disciples who didn't recognize him. They were wallowing in self-pity because Jesus didn't become the king that they thought he was going to be and like kick Rome out. And he's walking with them, and he basically goes, oh, well, Jesus died. We didn't expect that. And he's like, are you kidding me? They didn't know he was Jesus. He said, let me tell you how all the scriptures pointed to all of this. And he gives them an, a, an amazing history lesson to show how the entire Bible pointed to him. I did this the other day at my house. Uh, on one of our Wednesday night Sabbaths, we're sitting at the table, and I laid out like four cups or four salt shaker, I don't know, it's four things. And I said, you guys, this is the whole story of the Bible is about Jesus, and let me prove it to you. And we started with Adam and Eve. And I said, okay, Adam and Eve, what happens? They sin, that's right, they sin. And God comes and says, you've sinned, everything's cursed becoming you, relationships are cursed, creation is cursed, all these things are cursed, but Eve, someday you're going to have a baby. And it's going to crush the head of Satan. All right, cool. Goes forward. Get to Genesis 12. A guy named Abraham. We'll hear about in a second. And he is told, hey, guess what? I know you guys are both really old. I know that you, know, you don't have any kids right now. But you're going to have a kid. And that kid is going to bless the world. Awesome. Go forward to David, the king. And David is told, hey, I know there's been a bad king before you. There's going to be a lot of bad kings after you. But there is going to be a king that comes, a baby that you're going to have at some point from your line that's going to reign on the throne forever. Enter Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole Bible is one story and Judges is one chapter in that story. And so it's like a where's Waldo? Where's Jesus? That's what we're looking for. 
Because that's what everything points us to. It points us to the cross. It leads to the cross. The Old Testament is always pointing to the coming of a Savior, the coming of a King, the coming of Jesus. And the New Testament is always pointing to Him coming again. That's what the Bible is about. And so, we're going to give you, in order to fully understand the story of Judges, I want to give you a little bit of context of what came right before. We have the series in, in uh, Joshua. You could read that and you could listen to the sermons and you get a full picture. I'm going to do it in a kind of abridged version. But the prequel is Joshua, the book of Joshua, named after the guy who uh, leads. He's the general of the uh, Lord's army, if you will. His name means Yahweh is salvation. And the book of Joshua, if nothing else, is where the promise to Abraham was kept tangibly on earth. You go, who's Abraham? Great question. I'm glad you asked. Abraham was a pagan Babylonian whom God chose. And he commanded this guy named Abram at the time. He was actually the super great grandson of a guy named Shem. And Shem was the blessed son of a guy named Noah. And you kind of just follow the line back. And Abram was commanded by God to leave his country, to leave his extended family, to leave what he knew as home, and go to a foreign land beyond the Euphrates called Canaan. And the amazing thing to, to think about as I've been studying this, scholars talk about, like, what's the big deal about this land? Why this chunk of land? And they start asking where, prior to the flood, Eden was. And it's amazing to talk about the discussion of Eden being centralized right in this place, obviously with the Euphrates River being mentioned and others in Genesis. But by grace, he chooses Abraham, and by grace, he makes a covenant. It's not like Abram was looking for him. He makes a promise to Abraham, and what he tells him is that, as I said, his seed will be a great nation, more than the stars in the heavens, and that it will bless this man This person, the seed, will bless the world eventually. But before that time, a lot of things are going to happen, he says. And in Genesis 15, here's what he writes. The Lord said to Abraham in verse 13 of Genesis 15, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And that happened in a little place called Egypt. So he's being told, he's in Canaan right now. God's telling him, by the way, they're going to be going down south and they're going to be enslaved for 400 years. But verse 14, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for you, Abram, you will go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. You'll be an old grandfather. And they children, your offspring, will come back here, Canaan, in the fourth generation. And then he makes a really interesting statement. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Because Abraham's like, why 400 years? Come on. I was like, well, this, they haven't sinned enough. Now, we, we hear that and we go, God wants them to sin. What you should think about is like, well, if they're that sinful, why doesn't God kill them now? That's grace. That's another picture of grace where God doesn't give them what they deserve right now and lets them continue. And some, I'm certain, did repent. But Amorites haven't sinned enough, which is really a general term for all the Canaanites. 
Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these, these pieces. That was the sign of the covenant. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river Egypt, that's south, to the great river Euphrates, up north, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Ketamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gershites, the Jebusites, and any of the rites that we forgot that are there. Okay? He says, I'm going to give you all this land but about 400 years from now. So after 400 years, a lot of history, the book of Joshua records when that generation is coming in and the tangible fulfillment of that promise. You're taking the land now. And that list of people is named many times to Joshua. And so the first half of Joshua, and again, if you got the study guide, you'd see, the first half of the book, 10 chapters or so, records the military conquest, and it's brutal and violent and complete, and they annihilate everybody. The second half is, is kind of peaceful, because they have, in some sense, possessed the land, and they distribute um, the spoils, and they divide the land amongst the tribes by lot. So having possessed the land fully then, it comes, Joshua comes to the end of his life, and he charges Israel to live in the land faithfully that they now have. And before he dies, he's about 110, at the end of Joshua, and this is where we're going, Joshua 24, he gives a final speech to tell Israel what they ought do, and if they don't, what God will do. And this is the prequel and the setting for Judges. So I'm going to read a big chunk of chapter 24, so we understand what's being told to them. And in this speech that Joshua gives is amazing. By amazing, I mean it emphasizes the faithfulness and the grace of God. And we would easily read through this and all we get to the point of like, for me, my house will serve the Lord. And that's all we read. Prior to that, he is talking about the grace of God and telling the whole story from Genesis through Joshua. Here's how it goes. Verse 20, or chapter 24, verse 1 says this, Joshua, Joshua, what is that? Joshua, I don't know where that came from, gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders and the heads and the judges and the officers of Israel. And if I'm not wrong, Shechem is the very place that Abraham was promised in Genesis 15. Might want to check that. He summoned the elders and the heads and the judges and the officers of Israel and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Okay? So check this out. He's saying God's going to speak. And here's what he says. So imagine God saying this. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor. And they served other gods, which shows you why I said Abraham was a pagan. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. And I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. There's the book of Genesis. Okay? Continues in verse 5. Then I sent Moses and Aaron. 
And I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. And then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, He put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. There's the book of Exodus and Leviticus. God sent an 80-year-old fugitive named Moses. He goes into the land. God plagues them, 10 different plagues, and devastates the greatest empire on the earth at the time. And then he brings out his people, led by Moses, but Moses is not the hero. He was a murderer turned shepherd who argued with God about doing the job. And he said, go, I will speak for you. He goes, they leave Egypt, and the country is so, the nation is so devastated, they're giving them, like, here, take our gold, take, just leave, leave us alone. And they come out with great possessions as he had promised Abraham. Then he continues, Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites. Once they crossed the sea where they're really pretty much in that land or close to it. Who lived on the other side of the Jordan. So the Jordan River comes down and they, ten of the tribes are going to live on this side. And two, they spent a lot of time on this side before they crossed the Jordan. They don't cross the Jordan until Joshua, we see that. So I brought into the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan, and they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of the land, and I destroyed them before you. There's the book of Numbers. One thing it doesn't record in the book of Numbers is the rebellion. And what Joshua could have said, is, could have said was, remember the rebellion of your mom and dad. Because what happened in Numbers was they got to the edge of the land, and they sent in 12 spies. I don't know if you ever remember Sunday school and that old song. 12 men went to spy on Canaan. 10 were bad. 2 were good. Woo! What did they see? Remember that? My kids like that song. I love that song. Right? What did they see when they spied on Canaan? 10 were Okay, anyway. You get the point. 12 spies come back. 10 were bad. They go, oh, it's scary. They're like giants. They got all kinds of weapons. All we got is like rakes and gold. We're, we're, we're not going to, we can't do this. And then they say, and if we go, our kids will get killed. Yeah, hide behind your kids. Great job, okay? So, two of the spies go, no, it's ours. God's given us the land. And those two spies' names were Caleb and Joshua. And so Israel gets really mad at Caleb and Joshua. To the point they're going to kill him. They pick up stones and God's glory shows up. It's like, boo! No. And stops them. Okay? And God tells them, all right, faithless generation, because you hid behind your kids, they're going to bury your dead bodies in the wilderness and I'm going to take them in, led by Caleb and Joshua. And so they, for 40 years, go around the wilderness because they rebelled until they all die. Anyone below the age, or uh, above the age 21, I believe. So when everyone's dead, Joshua's ready, and they lead them over. Before they do, verse 9 says, Then Balak, so this is after the rebellion, there was still some time, 40 years of time. 
The son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. You could read that story in Deuteronomy. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So he turns the blood, he's going to curse them, and he blesses them. So I delivered you out of his hands. There's the book of Deuteronomy, a very short summary version. And then verse 11, we get to the book of Joshua. And he says, And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Man, that list sounds familiar. And he says, And I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. And the two kings of the Amorites, it was not by your sword or by your bow. God's making a pretty big case here. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them, and you eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. There's the book of Joshua. Grace, 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 grace. God gives, though they're unfaithful, constantly. And so we see in this speech a couple things. That first of all, we, just as Israel, attribute absolutely nothing to our salvation, but a nice pile of sin. God does it all. God is the one who saves. God is the one who delivers. God is the one who protects. It's all God. There's a reason why, if you read the speech carefully, the only things mentioned about men are when they sinned. They served other gods. They wrongfully went down to Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness. Those are the only things that are mentioned about men. Before God moved, it wasn't as if they were looking for God. And when God started to move, it's not as if they were running after Him. They were complaining the whole time of how great it was back in Israel under slave, or Egypt under slavery. Remember we had a little bit of meat and we were beaten every day? It was fantastic. <laughs> right? That's ultimately what they're talking about. Now, it is... A speech and a a, a prequel, a setting to the stage that is God who chooses, it's God who delivers, it's God who gives, it's God who works, it's God who fights, and it's God who blesses. Men bring their unfaithfulness. Now, the fact that we are by nature unfaithful, unfaithful, the fact that God owes us nothing, has given us everything, has the right to kill us all and doesn't, reveals the utter depth of God's grace and His faithfulness. Something that is is immeasurable to us. Though we were blind, God is faithful. Though we are lost, God is faithful. Though you run, God is faithful. Though you are oppressed by forces outside of yourself, God is faithful Though you're attacked, God is faithful. Though you doubt and complain, God is faithful. Though you're overwhelmed with impossible odds, God is faithful. Though you fall down, though you fail, God is 
faithful. He was faithful. He is faithful. He is going to be faithful. That's Judges. And the beauty of it, the amazing part of it, is that it's when we are unfaithful. But here's the other side of it. We go, yes, God is faithful to love. God is faithful to love. God is also faithful to judge. We're all celebrating God's promises. Like, well, let's talk about all of His promises. Right? And what He says in the second half of this speech here is jarring, or should be. Verse 14, here's what He says. Now, so now that you know this, now that you see the grace, you see the faithfulness, you see all that He's given you, Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you go, yes! Of course! And the people say that. Check out what they say. Then the people answered, Well, far be it from us that we shall forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And they confirm, I understand he was gracious. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who did these great signs in our sight and preserved in us all the way that we went. And among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. They confess. They say, He is faithful. Of course we're going to follow Him. Of course we're going to be obedient. He is so gracious. He protected us. He bought us. He delivered us. He's guided us. He has always been there. Then look at the book of Judges. Are you telling me that people can say, yes, I understand the grace of God, and then go live however they want? Yes. I can tell you that I've done that. I'm guessing that you've done that. And by grace, God stops me from doing that. But the reality is, you see all that God has done, and the generation turns. They forget. And Joshua knew that was going to happen. Verse 19 is one of the most disturbing verses, but I don't know if it's disturbing as much as it leads us to Christ. After they've confessed, oh, we're going to obey, we know he's done this, but Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. Talk about putting the fire out, right? Like, all right, let's go, let's be faithful. You're not able. What? He's a jealous God. He'll not forgive your transgressions or your sins. He will judge. If you forsake the Lord and serve for foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. We see God in the book of Judges making good on that promise. It's the story of a God who is faithful to his promise to love and he's faithful to his promise to judge. And quite frankly, this is our story. This is our story. This is us. 
See, we don't need, and Joshua knew this, we don't need a savior or a person to save us from the enemies of the big bad world out there. We need actually a hero who can save us from ourselves. And the problem is not in the big bad world. The problem is in this big bad heart. We need a man. We need a leader. We need a a hero, if you will, who can somehow deal with my sin without having to deal with sin of his own. A man, whether I put the cape on myself, which we all have a tendency to do, try and save ourselves, or if I put it on someone else, whether or something, a relationship, a substance, a reputation, success, name your idol. That can't change your heart. And that's what's sick. And the book of Judges shows us what happens when people try to find salvation in false gods or when they try to find salvation in other men or people. See, the best of God's men were bad. The best of God's men were bad. And the book of Judges, here's the the darkness of it. They, They are less faithful at the end than they were at the beginning. God saves them and saves them and saves them, and each judge gets worse. And by the time they're done at the end, they're worse than when they started. They're more unfaithful. You see, it goes from all these old oppressors attacking them to them attacking each other. It gets worse. And that's the best that we can hope from men. In watching this kind of world and seeing God's people do what is right in their own eyes, even God's leaders, was enough proof for the author. If you go to the very end of the book of Judges, you'll see that the author who wrote it, which was most likely Samuel, The last verse of the Bible, I'm sorry, of Judges, proves that the author knew they needed serious help. They had these amazing heroes come in and do some pretty incredible things, but they still needed serious help. The last verse of Judges shows us where he expected to find this hope. Verse 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right. In his own eyes. He knows the author is thinking of David, but God is thinking of someone else. We need a king. And the unfaithfulness of Israel, especially in view of God's immeasurable faithfulness, reveals something very amazing. That not only do we need a hero, not only do we need a a king, not only do we need a savior, we need one that's more than a man. We need one that's more than a man. The unfaithfulness we see in Judges leads us to Christ. And the unfaithfulness we see in Judges, if you don't keep it at a distance, but you see yourself, and I'm going to try very hard for us to see ourselves, because what they do and fail at are the same things we do and fail at today. I told you the two major things that the Canaanites that they went after in the false gods, money and sex. And if anything brings devastation in lives today, it's money and sex. Perversions in many forms of those two things. 
And so the unfaithfulness we see in judges should humble us, and I think will humble us, but the faithfulness we see of God should inspire and comfort us. And my prayer is that as we come face to face with our own sin, because that's where we should go. If you start talking about, oh, those judges in that big bad world, my guess is you're not actually thinking about how sinful and broken you are. And when you forget to think about that, that makes you act differently with other people. My prayer, though, is that we see that sin and we're honest about it, that we'll not be driven to despair, but we'll actually be driven to the cross. Because the cross is not only where God proves his faithfulness to us, but more importantly, he proves his faithfulness to himself, where he is perfectly loving and perfectly just at the same time. Judges confronts us, quite frankly, with a God that's way too big for us to explain. You're going to see some of these stories and go, how, could, how, how does God do that? You're going to see some of the devastating things that he does, and, and you're going to go, man, um, I'm not that screwed up. Be careful. God is so much bigger, though, than any sin that you possibly have committed, and you're going to see that here, and bigger than any sin that's been committed against you. See, faith in God is I'll close with this, is believing that your sin is too great to conquer. Your sin is too great to conquer, but that God is greater than any amount of depravity that could have possibly come into your life. If nothing else, you will learn this from judges. Here you go. It's a little saying. You can write on your mantle, your index card, put it on your car, tattoo on your arm. You are more sinful. We, I, I could say it. I am more sinful than I will ever admit or know. If I asked you to write down every single sin you could think that you've ever done, your list would never be as comprehensive as the list God has. You don't even know the depth of our sin. We are so totally depraved. Our thoughts, our perceptions, where we have not loved and we should have, all those things, we don't even know it fully. God does. So we are more sinful and broken than we would ever admit or know, but more loved and forgiven than we could ever imagine. That's judges. It leads us to grace, but you can't have grace without seeing your sin. And all of that leads us to the cross. So when you come up today, if you're a believer, we take communion every Sunday simply because the Bible tells us to. And we are coming to the table not going, woohoo, I'm saved, I'm so much better. We're coming to the table saying, I am broken and I need a Savior. I am sinful, I deserve death, but Jesus Christ died for me. Jesus Christ gives me His perfection because I will never have it. And so I am saved through faith in Him. Praise to Jesus. It's a grace table is what it is. So I pray that our study of Judges will be fruitful and full of grace as we look at some pretty dark stuff. Let's pray.